Uh, I have the privilege this morning of kicking off a new series on the seven churches in Revelation. Uh, Now, I know when most of y'all think of Revelation, you think of big scary beasts, maybe numbers, confusing symbols, right? And that is certainly part of Revelation. Um, I have a picture that is sort of uh, representative of what we sometimes think of. I don't know if you have that. Um, Now, this Revelation 2 and 3, as you can see, are a little bit different. This is not the flavor of Revelation we are getting into. It has aspects of eschatology or future sort of prophecy, uh, but it's not necessarily the point. And so the seven letters are situated primarily in John, the writer's current context, right? So then the next question might be why. Uh, When Dave asked me to introduce a series, my main question was this. Why this series at this time, right? We just came off of a series of hope, uh, which really hit well for me. Why are we next doing a series on Revelation? And Dave explained it to me, and then the more I thought about it, the more I thought that this was the perfect series for us uh, in this moment. I believe we as a church, a city, a nation, are in a bit of a rebuilding season, right? We're going on month 20, of a global pandemic, which has ravaged us, our cities, our structures. In the same time, there's been police brutality, unjust voting laws, and that's just the starts the list, right? Um, And I believe we as a nation have begun to ask in this season, what needs to be tore down? What systems in place, what laws, what norms need to be reconsidered because of their impact on different subsects of our society, right? And then many of us have been questioning some of our personal choices and the places we spend our time. You can look around if you've been here for as long as I have. I know I have. Um, It's clear that the faces in the room have changed a bit, right? And that's great. I'm excited that uh, with so many of the new friends I've met. um, But that also means that people have gone elsewhere. And we know that. And that's okay. So amidst all of this, we as a church want to ask the question, after a season of tearing down or even being torn down, what will we rebuild? And this, I think, is where Revelation 2 and 3 come in, right? What matters most to us should be what matters most to God, or you can flip that. What matters most to God should be what matters most to us, right? And these seven letters to the seven churches, I think, are tremendous teaching on what matters most to God for the church. It's prophetic in the sense that it challenges where the church might go and how it might be cognizant of where it could go wrong and to seek to change it. So in rebuilding our church and our missional community, we want to be about what God's about. So I'm excited for what the next seven weeks have for us. I think it's probably seven weeks or seven letters. So, um, With that being said, this is our first week, so I have to do a little bit of the context laying, right? So I want to give a little bit more context about the book of Revelation. If you already know it, this is a good time to nap. The book of Rev- thank you for the one pity laugh. Um, the book of Revelation was most likely written by the Apostle John. We say most likely, it is almost certain, but you just kind of have to say most likely still. Now, John wrote books that you probably have also heard of. They are John, First John, Second John, and of course, Third John. Um, as you may be aware, also, John was one of the disciples of Jesus, right? And now. All of the disciples of Jesus were murdered for their faith, except for John. Now, I want to say a little bit of a quick aside. I don't know if you guys knew this, but I grew up 
uh, not in a Christian family. We were sort of agnostic. We just didn't talk about deep things. Um, I became a Christian in high school through a church camp. It's a long story, but my first year of being a Christian, uh, I sat down with the high school teacher of the church camp, and I just threw at him question after question after question. I had no interest in joining like a moral society or a moral group, right? Um, I felt like I had a pretty good sense of where I was going and what life was like. I was wrong, but I still thought that. Um, one of the th- main things that... Um, sort of convinced me of the faith was that every single follower of Jesus, the first followers of Jesus who knew him personally, died for what they believed in, right? That's just something about that. It's like people have said that religion is for money, for power, for all these things, and you can't say that when someone dies for what they believe in, right? And so that's just a quick aside. Okay, but if John didn't die for his faith, what happened to him? Sometime around 96 A.D., John was on the island of Patmos, uh, not far from the coast of Asia Minor, where Turkey is now. And it says this in Revelation, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why it says he was on this island. Now, the common understanding of this, particularly because of the context of Rome and its response to Christianity at the time, is that John was exiled to this island of Patmos uh, by the emperor Domitian. Domitian, I think. Um, So Emperor Domitian, after his death, just a little bit of context of him, he was actually condemned to oblivion. That means they wanted to forget him in their society. Uh, By his own senate, they cited him as cruel and a paranoid tyrant, right? So I think if your own people call you cruel, there's probably a good chance that you were fairly cruel, right? And so that's a little bit more of the context of John being exiled to this island. So John wasn't executed for his faith, but he was exiled to a deserted island. Not much better, right? Now, the book of Revelation is a vision sent, to John, or sent by God to John, and John recorded it. And as referenced earlier, much but not all of it is eschatological or end times prophecy. It was written, though, particularly to seven churches in the area of Asia Minor that John would have been in close relationship with, and those seven churches are the same seven churches that we're going to look at in the letters. Now, let's think about a little bit about the structure of chapters two and three, because two and three are actually a little bit different than the rest of Revelation. And our good friend Tayun has taught us well, if you've taken any classes with him, uh, that to read the Bible well, we must understand what genre we are reading, Right? In other words, I interpret a kid's book far differently than I interpret The Onion, far, interpret, or far different than I interpret a fantasy novel, far differently than I interpret a Kendrick Lamar song, right? Like, the difference in interpretation depends on the genre that we're looking at. And when I know the genre, I can better understand the intended meaning. These seven letters have often been called letters, right? And we're going to probably continue to reference them as letters, but I believe there's a better, more specific word for these. It's a decree. Now, decree is an official order issued by a legal authority, sort of like a hear ye, hear ye sort of thing, right? Uh, Someone comes, issues something. Yeah, if I can ever work in a Robin Hood Men in Tights reference, I will. Um, Six of you apparently have seen that movie. Um, Just know it's funny. Uh, So it's, it's someone coming and saying something on the behalf of an authority, right? It's much stronger in nature than a letter. I can write a letter about anything, right? Um, But a decree is much stronger because there's the official order and then there's the authority from which it comes, right? 
How are these letters decrees? Well, there are official orders to the letters or to the seven churches in Asia issued by Jesus, the authority. We'll see more specifically in a bit, but the text says that Jesus himself walks amidst these churches. He cares for them. He loves them. And as a result, he calls them, decrees them back to himself. And then when we think more specifically about the structure, a lot of these seven letters follow a very similar pattern in style that we will see full force this morning. And they have, many of them have these four categories. It's condemnations, what is, the, what is the church doing wrong? Or sorry, commendations, what is the church doing right? Condemnations, what is the church doing wrong? Corrections, how can we fix it? And consequences, what happens if we fix it and what happens if we don't? You guys with me? All right. So we're going to go ahead and jump in. Uh, this was just a little bit of background, but, then, uh, but first let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to gather together uh, and hear from you. Lord, I pray that this morning uh, what is remembered are your words and not mine. Uh, who's glorified is you and not me, and that I can tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. In your son's name I pray. Amen. So I've alluded to this a lot, but we are looking at Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And this morning, I want to tag this text, Remembering Your First Love. Before I do that, though, I know I said I was just going to get in the text, but I want to run a thought experiment with you. As many of you are probably not aware, uh, the MLB baseball postseason is currently going on. Um, there, we're down to the, like, the semifinals, so there are four teams left. Now, the, the Dodgers and Atlanta play in game two of their series tonight. And Max Scherzer is a pitcher for the Dodgers. So I have a picture of him. Uh, he's a pretty intense dude, was just traded to the Dodgers. He's been one of the best pitchers in the league for almost a decade, or for over a decade. Uh, now let's pretend today, though, that pre-game, Max Scherzer is war does his sort of typical warm-up. He eats right, he stretches, maybe he does a little bit of weight training, probably not before a game, but let's pretend. Uh, he listens to whatever his hype music is. He's probably a big T-Swift guy. And he warms up in the bullpen, right? What happens when the start time comes and the manager is like, hey, Max, we're ready to go. Like, let's get, out, get you out there. And he's like, sorry, I got to get more reps in. Got to work out a little bit more. Got to listen to Evermore one more time, right? I can't get in the game because I got to keep prepping. How would we react? We'd think something was off, right? We, you practice to play the game, so something must be wrong. Let me say it like this. You can have the right process and miss the main point. You can have the right process and miss the main point. In case you missed that point, let me give you another example. My wife, and I, uh, my wife Jamie, and I have been married for five and a half years. Uh, what if it was her birthday, right, coming up? And I went and bought her flowers, got her gifts, planned out a day for her. And when the day comes, she's like, Jimmy, I'm ready to hang out. Let's go hang out. And I'm like, sorry, Jamie. I got to keep getting you stuff, right? I got to plan the day out for you. I got to do the dishes for you. Jamie would be mad, right? Like, she didn't marry me, so I'd do things for her. That was part of it. But that wasn't the whole thing, right? She married me because she wanted to be around me. She wanted that 60-year sleepover, right? <laughs> if we're lucky. Uh, you can have the right process, and miss the main point. Let me give you one more example, because some of you speak a little bit of a different language than I do. And I know you speak this language. 
If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I have nothing. If I give all my possessions to the poor, give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have what, church? I gain nothing. You can have the right process and miss the main point. Okay, we have to get in the text because I'm already sweating uh, and we can't be here this all morning. Dave said I had 40 minutes, so it means like 45. Um, our first letter is written to the church of Ephesus. So a little bit more background on Ephesus, right? Ephesus was the de facto capital of Asia at the time. It had everything. It had wealth from being a port city. Uh, it had highways running through it. It had culture, and it had a thriving church. You can think of it as the New York, L.A., Chicago of Asia, right? Now, in major cities, we know this, a lot is happening. And I'm not going to get into the details, but that means a lot of bad is also probably happening, right? There was, frankly, a lot of messed up things going on in Ephesus. With that, I want to look more deeply at the text this morning to see how our common structure uh, of commendation, condemnation, and the other two C's that I don't remember off the top of my head play out. Um, okay, intro to the chapter. It says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. All right, John is already hitting us with the weirdness that is Revelation, right? Uh, this is all explained in Revelation, luckily, itself though. To start, the word angel here really means messenger. So when you read the angel of the church uh, of Ephesus, right, you can think of the messenger, or in other words, the leader, the passenger, or sorry, the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Make sense? So he's saying to, to the pastor of the church of Ephesus, say this. And then Jesus has a very weird explanation of himself. It says the, to the one, or he is the one who holds the seven stars and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, I'll be honest, when Dave asked me to preach on Revelation, I was like, oh, Dave, I haven't read, I didn't actually tell him this, but I thought it. Um, but I'm a bit, bit of a people pleaser, so I didn't tell him. Um, I was like, man, Revelation is weird. Uh, I haven't read it, like, deeply for a long time, right? Uh, am I going to be able to do this? And then I read this first passage, and it's like, man, I really got to do, like, the interpretation immediately. Now, I had no idea what the lampstands and the seven stars were, and then I'm like, I'm a genius, so I'm kidding. Um, I was like, I'll read the first chapter of Revelation. And then, of course, I come across verse 20, and it says this, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels or the pastors of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So like, praise the Lord, right? I did not have to guess as to what that meant or read six commentaries. Easy money, right? So as I said, the stars are the angels, messengers, or pastors. And Jesus says he holds them in his hand right? Now, I know that there's imagery of God's hand in multiple times uh, throughout the Bible, right? But two passages came to mind when I read this. 
I thought about it in Job where it says, the Lord holds the breath of every living creature in his hand, right? Like, can you think about the, the, the sustenance that comes with being held in the Lord's hand? He holds the breath of every living creature, and he holds the leader in his hand, right? He is sustained. And then I thought about in Isaiah where God says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, I think that this is a little bit of a reference to Jesus being nailed to the cross, right? But what happens, like, when God engraves our name on, on his hands? There's some eternality to that, right? Uh, what happens to God stays. God is eternal. And then there's, there's intimacy. God knows our name. It's on his hands, right? And so there's this level of knowing, right? As he has us in his hands, right? He sustains us and he knows us. And then there's also a little bit of a warning, right? Now, I don't need to invoke images of Lenny and of mice and men uh, for you to get the, the point of the power of being in someone's hand who's much bigger than you, right? I know only a few of my fellow nerds understood that, but like there is power in being in someone's hand when you're far smaller than them, right? And then it says he walks among the lampstands. Jesus was in the presence of the churches. The lampstands are the churches. So Jesus meant it when he said, I will, and no, I am with you always to the end of the age, right? So that's what we, we get this picture of Jesus sustaining, holding, knowing, and walking amongst the churches. Okay, next verse. This is where we begin to get into our structure. So we have our commendation. The next verse starts with, I know. And I want to stop there because think about that. Jesus knows them. I'll be honest, first time I read through this, I didn't think much of this, but stop for a minute. Consider this. Jesus knows the Ephesians, right? You ever think about that? The Lord of the Lords, King of all kings, creator of all universe, the one who holds the breath of every living creature in his hands, knows the Ephesians. So what does he know? He knows that the church does well. He knows their deeds, their hard work, their perseverance and endurance, and that they hate evil. In other words, he knows they have the right, believer, right beliefs and the right behaviors. Sorry, I said that a little bit backwards. He knows that they have the right behaviors and the right beliefs, right? This church had it going, because what else could there be? You do the right thing, and you think the right thing. Now, I'm not going to bury the lead. We've already read the passage, and I've already made my main point about not missing the main point, right? But don't get ahead of yourself and think for a second how much good they were doing. Okay, that's enough thinking. Um, let's go ahead and get into the condemnation now. So we have the condemnation. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. You can have the right process and miss the main point. If I can be honest with everyone for a minute, when I was writing this sermon, uh, I was feeling pretty convicted, honestly. If I'm being honest, maybe the last, I think it's probably six, seven years, have been really difficult. I think it started when I read a book called Divided by Faith, which is a book which lays out why the church is so segregated along racial lines in America. Now, I was fairly knowledgeable before this about race in America at the time. I was um, an anthropology major at Northwestern, and so we talked about it. And, and I, was, I knew about sort of the history of America and race, right? 
but I did not have the knowledge about race in America's church, right? That had been left out of my education. After I read the history of race in the American church, I began to learn more and more and see more and more in our present day. And it was hard, right? But as I read it in that season, I felt like I had hope for our church as more and more spaces began to have those conversations, right? And as, as a nation over the last maybe four, five, six years, um, w- many of us said enough was enough and we took to the streets in protest for black lives, right? And in those seasons, I had hope. And then came the white lash, right? The white backlash. And I know all of this still existed in the church this whole time, but the, the things that pastors of American churches have said over this last year, it, it just leaves me speechless, right? The outright racism, the blatant disregard for sexual abuse in the church, the blatant disregard to reckon with our complicated history as a church, it has angered me. And if I'm being honest, I, I, I don't want to, I want to be careful. I don't want to say my situation is exactly like the Ephesians, right? They had a particular situation, a particular context. But I think that there are some parallels here. If I'm being honest, the anger toward the American church strained my relationship with God. I was forsaking the love I had at first because I was caught up thinking about the evil of others. And I want to be clear, this does not mean we stop caring, right? Like God even later says, I know that you hate the evil that the uh, people, Nick, I don't need to say their name, Nicolaitans. Uh, I, I know the evil, right? I know that you hate it, and I hate it, right? So God is not condemning that they hate evil, right? But I've been so afraid to take this anger to God that it has become anger toward God. Beloved, we cannot forsake our first love, or else our hatred of evil becomes a hatred of those who need the gospel just as much as we do. Hate evil, but love God while doing it. You can have the right process and miss the main point. Okay, so where do we go from here, right? We have commendation, condemnation, and the third C that I remember now because I've written down, correction. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So we see three very basic corrections here, right? Remember, repent, and redo. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Remember who the Lord is. Remember when grace captured you for the first moment, right? Remember that. Consider that. Consider where you have fallen from. Repent. Confess that you have fallen short. Turn 180 degrees and go back. I think often if some of us were asked how we were doing in our relationship with God, we would say fine. And I want to say it's fine to be fine, right? Um, Every moment doesn't have to be perfect. But I remember this moment, my sophomore year of college, uh, a good friend of mine who I was in a Bible study with asked me how I was doing my relationship with God. And I was like, honestly, it's pretty neutral. Like I'm not getting closer. I'm not going farther. I feel like I'm staying the same. And he gave me this illustration that I remember to this day. He was saying, not your initial sort of saving faith relationship with God. Like once that happens, you are saved. He sees you as he sees the sun, right? But after that, as you grow in relationship with God, he thought of it as like a tugboat. And so you're on this little rowboat and you're going toward an island. And that island, maybe the closer you get, the, the more and more 
the closer you get to God, right? And the more you know about him. But the current is pulling you back toward the shore. And so in our relationships with God, we're never neutral. We're either growing closer toward him by the power of the Holy Spirit or we're drifting away, right? So repent. Turn 180 degrees from, wh- from your drift. And then redo. I think often in sort of our Hollywood society, we believe that love is an emotion. And I think that there are emotional aspects of that. I don't want to take that away. But love is also a choice, right? And sometimes we have to choose to do that which we know will eventually stir our affections for God. It might not be raining now, but I'm going to put out the buckets for when it does, right? And then finally, we have our consequence. So uh, Jesus here says, if you do not repent, remove the lampstand from its place. Do you see the risk of having the right process and missing the main point? We may continue to meet as a group of people. We may agree on the same things. We might even look like we're doing well, but we will no longer be the church. Our lampstand will be removed. We will no longer shine the light that is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? That is the risk. But to the victorious, to, re- to those who recapture their first love, God promises that he will give the right to eat from the tree of lice, life, not lice. That would be bad. I would assume. I've never eaten lice. Um, in the paradise of God. Now, I'll be honest. I don't know exactly what this means. Like, we're smart people, so we know that this is a reference to Genesis, right? That Adam and Eve in the garden, they were not to eat of the tree of life, right? And so there's a little bit of this, like, Jesus redeems our first sin, right? Jesus renews all things. There will be a new heaven and new earth where we have freedom in paradise. We will be able to eat of the tree of life. But I think what hits me even deeper here is what is in paradise? Or more, a a better question is who is in paradise, right? It's God. To those who recapture their first love, they spend eternity with him. They walk in the cool of the garden as if they're friends, just as Adam and Eve did. Friends, I want to close with this. I think we can hear today and we can take it the wrong way, right? I need to be better at loving God. I need to try harder at loving God. And maybe that's partially true, right? Uh, Grace-filled, spirit-filled effort is not a bad thing, right? But a wise man once told me that shoulding on yourself just gets you dirtier, right? I should do this. I should do that, right? My, my desire for you is that you find, you refine whatever captures your heart for God. Whatever it is that stirs your affections for the Lord, is it the word? Is it solitude? Is it a good friend? Is it nature, right? Whatever you need to do, recapture that first love. Because while the consequences may be severe, the benefit is far greater. A deep, loving relationship with the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords, right? You can have the right process and miss the main point.